When I began preparations and prayer and seeking of the Lord's counsel of where he would have us to go in the sermon last week, I foolishly thought I'd cover all eight verses of Psalm 119, 1 through 8. And as it study came together, I quickly realized that the point and the, the direction of last week's message was on just the first three verses, which described to us the blessed man. And that was our text and our, or our subject last week was the blessed man. God has brought us back to these verses again, shown so many different things in this passage that I, I would like to share with you today. But if verses one through three told us and described to us who the blessed man is, and again, gender neutral, who the blessed person is, who the blessed woman is, who the blessed child is, who the blessed man is. Verses 1 through 3 told us about who that is. In these remaining verses of this first section, again, Psalm 119, there's 176 verses, 22 different sections of eight verses, all labeled with the in alphabetical order of the Hebrew alphabet, which has 22 sections. And each section here, as you see, is is labeled with that letter. Aleph is this first one. And in the remainder of these verses of this first section, God now, or the psalmist, from God, tells us the way of the blessed man. And that's what I would like to speak to you today about, is the way of the blessed man. 176 verses, and 172 of them are directed to God directly in prayer. The first three verses and then one verse much later on are verses that are not specifically directed to God. So 98% of these verses is a prayer to God, speaking to God. And with these simple thoughts in mind, I would ask you to read along with me. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 1 again. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. And here he changes. Here the psalmist addresses God and will do so, as we said, for, the, for practically the rest of this psalm. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. David, in verse 4, begins his prayer to God and begins speaking directly to God. So I want to note just right off the bat that the way of the blessed man, the blessed person, is not merely uh, interested, is not merely concerned about right behaviors. But it, he is, she is, the blessed one is concerned about a right relationship with God. His, his thoughts do not merely go to what I do. 
what I do for God. He does not go merely to his behaviors, his outward circumstances, his attendance, perhaps if he lived today at church on Sunday, his tithing, his good Christian life outwardly. Of course, these things are involved. And we're going to talk about that today. But first and foremost, it is the blessed way, the life of a blessed one. His blessed way involves frequent, and we might say continual, conversation with God. An ongoing relationship with God. We note that it is possible It is possible for us to have right behaviors without a right relationship with God. It is it is easy, even in some ways, to have a sense of obedience without a right relationship with God. Again, it is possible to have obedience to God in a a degree without a right relationship with him. That is possible. You can, pardon me, come to church every Sunday. You can do a lot of Christian things in your life. But that is not what David is giving us an example of here. He is speaking to God. He is. Of course, he's concerned about others in some sense, but his prayer is to God. It is possible to have obedience without a relationship, but it is not possible to have a right relationship without obedience. Obeying God without a love for God, listen, this is, this is just true, I believe, from the Word of God and from experience, sadly. Obedience to God without a love for God is self-righteousness. It is empty And it's unlikely, by the way, to last for very long. And in the first three verses, we discovered that the blessed man is one whose way is blameless. Not individual actions. We all fall. We fall short. But that way, as we talked about last week, that way of life, that manner of living is without blame. And that is not possible without a love for God. And the psalmist knows that. David knows that. And he begins to speak to him. So first and foremost, the way of the blessed man is a continual conversation with God. It's ongoing. It's not here and there merely, but it's ongoing. And so I will ask you multiple times today as we go through our comments, is are you a blessed man or woman or child? Are you blessed? Because according to the word of God, here's what the blessed man his life is here's the blessed man's way and it begins we cannot miss this prayer to god this speaking to god and if you have not been saved if you do not know the lord i will tell you this it will not happen without you talking to god speaking to god not with words that i would give you not with a recipe Not with self-righteousness, but with a call upon God to forgive your sin and to place your trust in Him and for you to speak to Him because one day you will stand before Him. And so today I encourage you, as we look at the rest of this psalm, that you would speak to God. We pray that God would speak to you and draw you 
We believe in the depravity of man and that if God did not come to us, we would never come to him. I believe the scriptures teach that plainly and without any real controversy, in my opinion. None of us would seek God, the scriptures say, but he seeks us. So it's today as you are here and if you would know what it is to live the way of a blessed man, you have before you the answer of how that happens, what that looks like, what it is consistent of. And all of us just get, as we say, one walk through this world. And oh, my prayer for you is that you would desire to walk with God through this life. Salvation, the beginning of that, not the end but the beginning of a life that is lived as a blessed man or woman. One who is living their life as this psalmist describes. And he begins in verse 4. And he says that it is the diligent keeping of his precepts that God has commanded. And they are just that. They're commandments. What God has for us to do. They're commandments. Given from the ultimate place of authority. God himself. So the way of the blessed man involves a diligent keeping of God's precepts. And the word precepts and the word of God, by the way, many different words used. Statutes, precepts, commandments, laws, word. All of these reflecting the will of God in a certain way and a certain angle. And this word precepts in the Hebrew, it is its instructions and procedures. The way of the blessed man is a diligent keeping of the commands that God has given us, the instructions, the procedures, how we're to live this life. There is in this word an eye for detail. An eye for detail and a careful study of the specifics. This is not a casual looking. This is also, by the way, one of the first things we're taught as children, isn't it? How to follow instructions. Instructions maybe that as a child you didn't understand. You didn't know why, but the individual who was in charge of you, your parents, or perhaps the teacher, and you were taught, if you were taught well, to obey the instructions. You don't have to understand them. You don't have to know why yet, not as a child, but you have to learn obedience. And I will tell you today that one of the things that Satan has done to, to unravel the Christian ethic and mindset in our culture and in our nation today is the loss of an understanding and respect for authority and the following of instructions. The instructions specifically of God. One of the most important things that we're taught is to follow instructions. One of the most important things for a soldier is to follow instructions and do so without question or doubt. The way of the blessed man follows the the instructions, the precepts of God. And we, as children of God, as Christian soldiers, we are advantaged because our commander is God. The one who knows all, can do all, and cares for us so much that he sent his son to die in your place and mine. This God who called everything that we see from nothing into existence, including, by the way, you. This God, we can follow the instructions that he gives. 
And we follow his instructions when we understand them and when we don't fully understand them. And we follow his instructions if we are to live a life that is blessed. We follow them when we perhaps don't like the instructions. Would prefer to do something else. It is easy to follow God when he calls us to do something that we don't mind doing. That in a way we like to do. It is difficult to live this obedient life, this way of the blessed man, when God calls us, shakes us, and pulls us into a place we'd rather not go. But the instructions that God gives to us if we're to live a blessed life is we follow those instructions, those precepts, those things that God has specifically outlined in His Word, and then consistent with his word as the spirit takes that word and, pre- and prints them in our hearts and guides us and shows us what we're to do in our lives. But the way of the blessed man is a diligent keeping of these precepts. It's not without effort. It, it, these things to the blessed man, the, the instructions of God, they're not suggestions merely. I've got a humorous plaque, I guess, that I've always kept. I don't even remember where we picked it up on some vacation, if memory serves. And it said, God didn't call them the Ten Suggestions. They're the Ten Commandments. These are commandments of God, not suggestions. They're not merely God's desire. It's not merely something that God wants us to do. These are things that God has commanded us to do. In your New Testament Greek, those imperative verbs, those things he says, do this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God more than anything else. Love your wives. Love your children. Teach them. These imperative commands of God, the blessed man lives a life that is diligently keeping of those specific instructions. Verse 5 We began to get a sense of the sincere desire in David's heart to be this blessed man. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Do you sense David's sincere desire in this? He's not making this up. This is not a show. He's not saying these things to impress other people. We see here and glimpse here into David's heart and we see a man who desires to be a blessed man. Someone who desires to live a life that God is pleased with. That is in the presence of God. That is in such a way that conversation and fellowship with God is assured. Oh, that my ways were steadfast. And there's there's a multiple layered meaning of this Hebrew word steadfast it is to prepare to be ready to establish the blessed man's way is a life that is prepared and purposely established and ready to keep god's statutes and statutes are laws and prescription we'll talk more about that briefly but i think for many There is a great absence of this kind of sincere desire to set up righteousness in the life. Oh, that my ways were steadfast, thoughtful, prepared, made ready. 
that I'd, I would set my life up and my pattern and my morning routine and my afternoon and the way I go about my day at work and the evening routine that I follow in some way that I would set it up and I would establish it so that God's word is never far away from me, that the place of prayer is never far away from me, that I would set myself up for success spiritually rather than failure, that I would be steadfast, in this, that when my life is over, people might look and say, that was a man like perhaps we read of in Scripture, far, far from the exact example. But in his or her life, they established God's statutes in their life. They set them up. They wrote them on their foreheads, spiritually speaking, and they had them in their hearts. They were prepared. Instead, sometimes I think we think we stumble ourselves into the Christian walk. We just kind of wake up one day and we find out, wow, God in His mercy and His providence placed us here and and He does that. But He also looks to you and He wonders, do you have a heart like this? Do you have a desire like this? Is there a desire in your heart to be a blessed man? Do you want to be? Or do you want to be like, sadly, most others? Live a life that is consumed with themselves, only concerned about this life and not the next. That my ways, David says, would be steadfast in keeping your statutes. The Hebrew word for statutes come from, comes from another root word that means engrave laws that are cut in stone. Is the idea again here. We think, of course, of the Ten Commandments. These things that have been written It's used to describe the work of a scribe, one who writes the decrees that have been written down. And so statutes, to me, seems to point to God's written laws found in Scripture that He has written, that He has engraved, that He has written down in such a way that in Jeremiah's day when they were tired of what He had to say and the king took the words of Jeremiah and cut them up, trying to destroy them, and then God just had Jeremiah write it all down again just like it was written before. It's amazing to me, isn't it? Thousands of years, men would love to have gotten rid of this book that we're holding and they've not been successful and they never will be. Never will they be. These are the words of God and these statutes. These are the things that we, oh, that my ways were established like these words, these laws, these statutes that have been written. Yet once again, once again, we must be careful. There is in this a danger, and I have seen it personally myself. I've seen it in me and I've seen it in others. There is a danger we must never forget that God's statutes are not just ultimately written down on tablets of stone or written on pages with ink. But God's statutes are written on your heart. Where God wants to be, by the way. Written on your heart. Jeremiah himself said it. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Look, Christianity is not a cold, habitual following of an unknown God's rules that other men have told us, he said. 
It is the passionate pursuit of God to obey his rules, his statutes, his laws, his his decrees, which he himself has written in our hearts. And place them deep within us. If God has not written his law in your heart. If he has not with the Holy Spirit penned these words in your heart to where they are in you. And as we've already heard this morning, there is the desire to know them. A desire and a longing to know them more. If God has not written these things in your heart, your Christianity will be in name only. Perhaps even a good Christian in the eyes of others. You might be a Christian the way others would describe you. Someone might look and say, well, that person's a Christian. They go to church on Sunday. That person's a Christian. I've never heard a cuss word out of their mouth. That person's a Christian. They're kind. That person's a Christian. They're honest and they live their lives with integrity. That person's a Christian because fill in the blank. If God hasn't written his laws in your heart, what you are not is a blessed man. If you're following them because that's what is expected of you merely by others, you're not a blessed man. You may in some respects want to be a good person, live a good life, but you're not a blessed man or woman. Not according to the scripture. And isn't this, by the way, all in the background of all that we're saying Should we not recognize that God wants us to be blessed? He wants you to be blessed. The enemy of your soul will tell you he doesn't. He'll tell you that God wants to just rule your life and take it over and and make it to where you can't have any fun or enjoy your life. And David is here telling you, he's screaming, he's got, a, loud, he's got a, a microphone and he's trying to tell you as loudly as he can because God wrote it down in this book, the blessed man does these things. This is his way of life. I want you to be blessed. God wants you to be blessed. And you might do all of those things outwardly, but if God has not written his law in your heart, then you're not blessed. Verse 6, then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. The way of the blessed man understands the cause and effect relationship between obedience and blessedness. The way of the blessed man understands the cause and effect relationship between obedience and blessedness. The blessed man understands that the relationship, how how this relationship works, because he uses the word in verse 6, then, then I shall not be put to shame. And put to shame, by the way, just means just what it says. It's to be disappointed. It's to be ashamed. It's to be confounded. In some ways, you can think of it as the opposite of blessed. Then, when, what, when he had accomplished what he said in verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then, then I will not be put to shame. It seems today that there is a great misunderstanding of the cause and effect relationship between anything anymore. 
For many years now, our children and ourselves, we've, we've not been taught how to think logically very much anymore. We've not been thought to be independent, discerning thinkers. We've instead accepted the words of the experts. And I don't want to get off on a soapbox because that's not what's important today. But what I do want to tell you is this. There is always in life a cause and effect relationship between everything that you do. And it seems today that we want to divorce ourselves from that understanding. We want to remove ourselves from the idea that there's a cause and effect relationship at work in life. We want the great job, but we don't want to work hard to gain it and to earn it. And we don't want to work hard to keep it. We want all kinds of riches and we want all of these things. And we want to be healthy, but we don't want to exercise or demonstrate the self-discipline to eat correctly. We want God to always be at our beck and call. But we don't want to obey him. There's a cause and effect relationship that the blessed man understands and knows and recognizes. He understands the difference. But notice the place God's commandments have in this blessed man's life. His eyes are fixed on them. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on your commandments. He does not merely glance at them on Sunday. He does not casually look at them when they're close by. Instead, the blessed man's eyes are fixed on God's commandments. They're looking carefully and closely. Studying them. And yet even here, there is in the Hebrew a sense that the blessed man is unashamed when he looks at God's commandments. A lot of tricky translation here in the Hebrew, to be honest with you. The King James, the American Standard Version, the, the ESV that we read from primarily, and the NASB, they all translate this just a, a little bit differently. The NASB, I think, also captures it well with, with this cause and effect relationship. And it translates this verse, Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. When will you not be ashamed when you look on God's commandments? When you have been steadfast in keeping them. That's the way of the blessed man. The blessed man then is the one who can look at God's commandments and be unashamed. We have just reached a fork in the road though. If you're thinking. The diligent student of God's word, the one who understands God's word, you know that I have just walked myself into a difficulty. The only man, the, the blessed man, and by the way, we said last week and we say it again today, it's within reach. Being, living a life of blessed, being blessed by God and being a blessed person, it's within our reach. And yet it then it goes on to describe somebody who's blameless. Well, none of us are blameless. So how do we get around that? And we spoke about that last week, and I don't want to rehash that, but today we're in a similar conundrum. The only one, the blessed one, is one who can look at God's law and be unashamed. So everybody here, raise your hand if you can look at God's law and with complete and total uh, uh, intellectual honesty with yourself say, I've never broken any of them. What are we to do with this conundrum? Who, who is the blessed man? There's only one answer. The blessed man is Christ. 
It's Jesus. The only one who can look at God's law and its perfection and be unashamed. Yet you and I have the opportunity by the grace of God to have something of that same blessedness and that same opportunity to understand that blessedness when we place our trust in Christ because then He becomes our righteousness. He becomes our path to blessedness. You see, there's a danger here that the legalist or the one that will beat you over the head with a scriptural-shaped club and tell you, look how terrible you are. You've, you could never be blessed because you've broken God's law. You can't look at God's law and be unashamed. And there is an element and a strain, of course, of truth to that. But we have the opportunity to experience the blessed man's life and the blessed man's way when we are in Christ. In Christ, I have satisfied the law of God. Remember that His righteousness, according to Scripture, becomes ours when we are saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 tells us this. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In Christ, I can be unashamed. So as I look at the way of the blessed man here, I remember, oh, it's only in Christ that I can be unashamed. It's his righteousness that God sees when he looks at me. I can only then be a blessed man if I am in Christ Jesus the Lord. So come to Christ today. Cast your sin upon him. He took it for you on the cross. If you will repent and believe in his name, he will take away the burden of shame you feel inside. He will cleanse you of your sin and not merely provide you with an excuse for your sin that so many others are ready to give you, but he will take that sin away because he took it upon himself. And by the way, when did we start thinking that just because everyone was a sinner, it's okay to be a sinner? When did we start thinking that? Isn't that a lot like saying, well, everybody's got cancer, so I guess I won't look for a cure. When did we start thinking this way? It's when we stopped thinking at all. God is righteous. If you know anything about him, you know that. And you are lost and sinful without Christ. And you know that as well. It's also like saying, well, everybody's starving, so I might as well not search for something to eat. God will not heal your shame by telling you that you need to not be ashamed. That's not how he'll heal your shame. He will not take it away by telling you, oh, don't worry about it. Instead, he will heal your shame by telling you that he came to take your place and died to replace your sin with his righteousness. And then you can say, I am a blessed man. Because I can look at the law of God and through Christ, I am unashamed. When I stand before God on the day of judgment, I will not say to him, look at all that I did. Jesus, I spent, if if he takes me home tomorrow, I spent more than a quarter of a century preaching your word. Boy, that's got to merit me something. Tried to raise my kids to know you. I 
I tried to help others in small ways. I tried to read your word and study it. But look at all the hours. That is not what I am going to say to my Lord. That is not why I am going to enter into eternity unashamed. It's not why I'm a blessed man today. I'm a blessed man because Christ Jesus died for me. He took away my shame. He picked it up 2,000 years ago. He placed it on his shoulders and he went to the cross and he died so that that shame can be eternally done away with. So that I can be blessed. So that you can be blessed. The way of the blessed man knows that. And when he reads this, he stops and he thinks, I can never be blessed because I can never be unashamed. But then he says, oh, but Jesus. Jesus took my shame and I can stand before him unashamed and I can boldly approach his throne because I'm tapping on the shoulder of the one who died for me, who God looks at and says, he is the one I am pleased with above all others. But the terms of this gift, the terms of this removal of this shame, they are set and unchangeable. The way of the blessed man is set and unchangeable. These terms are more certain and unchanging than all the laws that govern our physical world. Gravity, that ever steady and present force that keeps us on the ground and without which nothing in our lives would work, is less certain than the terms of God's gift of salvation. Light, that mysterious and undeniable presence without which our eyes would be useless and our lives spent in complete confusion and fear, is less certain than the term of God's gift of salvation. And the reason for this is because one day these things that govern our physical world, at least in their place and in their time, are going to be done away with, but the plan of salvation is going to stand forever. The way to God, the way to a blessed life, the way to being a blessed man, these terms are set and established and they will not change. And those terms, of course, are your belief in Christ. Your trust in him and I stress that word you and your not mine not his not hers yours you can't be blessed because someone else is not in this sense these terms of salvation will remain unchanged from the first moment of time when that first second ticked off the clock to the very last second that's going to tick off the clock somewhere out there in the future. These terms will stand. And all who are in heaven today, as I've often said and even written, you tap somebody on the shoulder and ask them, why are you here? They'll say, because I know him. He knows me. And through him, I am blessed to be here. Not because of anything I did. But if you want to be blessed, you this is the way of the blessed man. We move on. This blessed man possesses an upright heart, we're told. I will praise you with an upright heart, verse 7 says. 
And David, so now he professes to God. He's talking to God. Never forget that as you're reading this. These are not words spoken lightly. He is speaking to God and he says, I'm going to praise you with an upright heart when he learns his righteous rules. An upright heart is, is, is one that is right before a standard. To be upright before something, it is to be right next to it. And that standard here, of course, is God, not man. David is professing that his praise to God will be done in uprightness. It will not be duplicitous. My praise to you, God, will not be fake. It will not be just because I'm obligated to come. And note carefully, David possess, or professes to God that it is with an upright heart that he will praise him. And we remember once again that that is what God is after, your heart. This is what God requires. This is what God wants. You recall a message some months ago, what does God want? He wants your heart. It is true that you must give God your obedience. Yes, that is true. But you must first give him your heart. It is true that you are to give God a portion of your finances. That is true. But you must give him first your heart. It is true that you ought to give God your attendance with his people on Sunday. But you must first give God your heart. It's true that you must acknowledge that everything you have is God's. But before you can give him anything rightly. You must first give him your heart. A heart that is fully given over to him. Now listen, giving God anything before you give him your heart is bribery. It's bribery. Either trying to bribe God or you're trying to bribe others to think of you in a certain way. Giving God anything without giving him your heart is bribery. And you possess, by the way, nothing that isn't already God's. Well, he's taught us that. The one thing above all others that God asks of you is your heart. In fact, of all those other things you might give him. He's asking for a heart fully given to him. Do you remember when God told Saul? That king who'd lost his way. God said, I've, I've found someone that's going to sit on your throne because I'm taking you off of it. And this one is a man after my own heart. That's what God's looking for from you. He's not looking for strength in the eyes of the world. He's not looking for cleverness, wisdom, influence. He can use all of those things, of course. He's looking for your heart. He can't do anything with you if you don't give him your heart. He can use you in his divine providence and he can accomplish his will. He used foreign kings for crying out loud. He can do whatever he wants. He is sovereign. I will never argue that. But if you want to be a blessed man, if you want to be a blessed woman, if you want to be a blessed young person, old person, middle-aged person, you're going to have to give God your heart. And by the way, David's not speaking here, and that's who's writing this by all estimation. That's who's writing this. He doesn't claim it in the scriptures, so it's not dogmatic. But it certainly appears to be a psalm of David. And if it is indeed him, he's not merely speaking from a classroom, is he? A Sunday school room or a church pew. 
He's not merely speaking in theological terms. He's not really writing poetry or merely writing poetry, though he is. He is speaking from his personal experience. Experience, by the way, that included wonderful times of victory, standing over the body of the giant Goliath. No business even there in that fight, and yet God delivered this giant of a man into his hands. And so David is speaking with experience that includes those wonderful times of victory, but he's also speaking from experience of times when he was running from the king who wanted him dead. Times of joy and fellowship with friends and family. And times when those same friends and family closest to him would betray him and turn from him and rebel. And in all these times, David writes to you and to me through the Spirit of God, and he says, the blessed man is a man who praises God with an upright heart. David pronounces that he will do this even when, and specifically when, he learns God's righteous rules and rules. The Hebrew can mean a verdict. These rules in the Hebrew, it means a verdict. It is a word that describes the pronouncement of a judge. So listen, the way of the blessed man is, a, is the way that when God's verdict is heard on a matter, David testifies that he'll praise him regardless of the verdict because it's God's. Whether the verdict is one that makes him temporarily happy in this life or more difficult or easy or hard, that's almost beside the point. Once God's verdict is made and given on a manner, the blessed man praises God and does so with an upright heart. Do you remember over the last few weeks I've been remarking of the difficult path of the Christian life? It is not for the weak. When God issues a rule, a verdict. It makes life difficult. The blessed man with an upright heart praises God. Are you a blessed man? We want to work towards our close today by noting in verse 8 this the reality that this is all personal. The blessed man keeps God's statutes personally. Personally. You remember in verse 2, God referred to the blessed as those who keep God's testimonies. Here in verse 8, David makes a personal commitment to keep God's statutes. I will keep your statutes. I will. Statutes, it means decree, enactment, an appointment. So this has become deeply personal for David at this point. It isn't merely about blessed ones in the abstract. And that's the danger of far too many sermons on a Sunday. The truths are abstract. They don't hit us personally. They don't come and live with us in our hearts as we walk away from the church service thinking, I've heard, now I need to wrestle with this in my life. David does not end his comments there. What he's already said is wonderful as they are. He says, I am going to do this. This has become deeply personal for David. 
It isn't about this blessed man in the abstract. It's not about a straw man that we would invent. It's about him before God. Remember, a prayer individually, personally before God. You and I will never be like this blessed man until we make our personal commitment to walk in God's commandments. I will keep your statutes. We ought to be, God has designed his church to be, I believe, in such a way that we are accountable to one another. We should be. We are. But we're accountable to one another because we're accountable to God. Our accountability to one another is in, within the umbrella and under the umbrella of our accountability shared before God. We must realize that we are accountable individually, though ultimately before God. We must realize that the blessed man of Psalm 119 is a man who has committed himself to keep his statutes. And if you'll just give me your attention for a few remaining minutes. This is the area that God really blessed me in understanding some of this and wonderful thoughts. The good news here is that no one can keep you from doing this in the future. No one can keep you from living the life of the blessed man. No one can. That's the good news. If you commit your way to God and you strive to make the word of Psalm 119 your own words, then no power on earth can keep you from being a blessed man. Nothing and no one can. This is important for us today because we are living in a time when it is becoming and will, I think, continue to become more difficult each day to live this life of a blessed man before God. And it's becoming more difficult, perhaps, than it's ever been in our lifetimes. Political correctness has become political truth. And the God of political correctness is requiring more and more of our allegiance and obedience. It will, be, it will likely not be very long before we are required, like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah before us, to bow down when the music starts to play and worship a false god or face the punishment of a modern-day fiery furnace. But even a fiery furnace didn't prevent those three young men from following the way of the blessed man. It is very likely that they had sung this very song and they knew the way of the blessed man, these three young men. It's likely they sung it themselves. And when Nebuchadnezzar, that most powerful man in all the land, came and demanded their worship and obedience, even he, with all his power, all his strength, all his armies, all his place and position, all of it, he could not force those three young men to not be blessed. Listen to these blessed men as they face Nebuchadnezzar and his threat in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. And you know them by their more common names, though these are their Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, the king had come to them and he said, listen, I heard that when the music plays, you three don't bow down like I have commanded people to do. What's up? If you don't start doing it, I'm sending you to the fiery furnace. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't even owe you an answer, king. 
But if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These men knew that the decree, see, Nebuchadnezzar had made a decree. That's what they called it. I made a rule, and I am king, Nebuchadnezzar said. These men, though, they knew the decree they were to follow if they wanted to be blessed men. These men knew that the decree, the statutes, the laws, the word they were to follow were God's, not Nebuchadnezzar's. And when the two came into conflict, they chose the way of the blessed man in Psalm 119. And as your life continues to transpire from this day, if there is one thing I want to tell you today and you take with you, it is this. Am I going to choose the way of the blessed man when Nebuchadnezzar threatens me today with a fiery furnace? Think about, by the way, that's the good news. That's the good news, right? No one can keep you from this. No one can. Oh, just read Adoniram Judson. Read Hudson Taylor. Read Corey Tenboom. Read of these men and women. Read their lives and how it was difficult on the outside, but oh, their blessed life with God. And take strength and understand that no power on earth and keep you from walking the way of the blessed man. That's the good news, but there's also a little bit of bad news that we have to wrestle with, that we have to be honest about. If the good news is that no one can keep you from doing this and choosing this, then the sobering news is that no one has ever kept you from doing it in the past. If you didn't give God your heart, your obedience, your love, your trust, when you were called upon to choose, you have no one to blame but yourself. I have no one to blame but myself. Think about the last time you failed to act as the blessed man of Psalm 119 would have acted. If you're young here today, maybe it was at school where the peer pressure of those around you caused you to forsake God's way, his testimonies, his statutes, his precepts, his word. In that moment, the only person who kept you from being a blessed man and living and walking in the way of the blessed man was you. It wasn't your friends. It wasn't the peer pressure. It was your choice. For those who are older, maybe it was at work where fear of losing your job or your position kept you from acting as a blessed man would act. Perhaps you were silent when you should have spoken up or perhaps you spoke up when you should have been silent. Perhaps you should not have laughed at that joke or looked the other way when someone was clearly in the wrong and taking advantage. Whatever the circumstances might have been, no one around you is to blame for your lack of following the blessed man's path. You are. And you know what the world will say to you now? What they would say to me if they were in here and had the opportunity? They would stand up and say, how dare you say that to these people that you claim to love? How dare you speak in such a way as to put that obligation and responsibility on them? You should give them a free pass. You shouldn't be concerned about these things, but I will tell you this. I tell you this because it's the only way to a blessed life. Your accountability to God is your only avenue to a blessed life. 
Now, before you beat yourself up too much, and I want to close, I know I'm, I've been a little long. I'm going to close soon. If you just bear with me just a few more moments before you beat yourself up too, because this is very important. And I know that word very is not descriptive. This is important. Before you beat yourself up too much, you must realize that every one of us in the room have likely acted in ways contrary to the blessed man. Every last one of us. I hope and pray that our way, we talked about last week, the pattern of our life is blessed, is one that keeps God's commands at heart. But sometimes we beat ourselves up so thoroughly about our failures that we lose consciousness. Or we allow Satan to take the club that we've been beating ourselves with and he begins to beat us with it instead. Listen, you and I must recognize the difference between God's chastisement and Satan's beatings. I just want to read this to you. When God chastises us, we will feel the pain of his displeasure. We will feel the pain of his punishment. But in our pain, we will also realize that God is punishing us because he loves us. He is trying to make us better. He is trying to encourage us to follow the way of the blessed man. God's punishment and chastisement then is always for our good. Satan's beatings, on the other hand, will have no sense of love in them at all. There will be no sense that the beating is intended for our improvement. It will be meant only for our pain. We end up feeling a pain that is absent of love. And there is nothing worse than enduring pain in the absence of the hope of something better and the love of the one causing us the pain. Enduring pain without love and hope. There is perhaps no better description of hell. So knowing all this, the psalmist makes a final plea to God. Do not utterly forsake me. The blessed man knows that without God's help and guidance and strength and assistance, he will not follow the way of the blessed man. He knows himself, but he also knows his God. He realizes that ultimately it is Christ's righteousness that he has and not his own. He realizes that he does not have the strength, but God does every morning as we begin our days. May we act and may the way of the blessed man be on our hearts and minds. And may we too, may we too call out to God that he would be near, that he would guide, that he would hold us and keep us. On the way of the blessed man. May these things be in our hearts. May we strive daily. May we put things in our lives. And prepare ourselves to live the blessed man's way. Are you blessed? Are you blessed? If not, God offers you blessing. Choose you this day, Joshua said, whom you will serve. And you'll find if you follow God, it will be a way of blessing.
Sometimes it might be difficult to see it, but it will be. Let's have a song.